0: Good morning, everybody. We've got plenty of seats. If you'll make your way into the gym, we're glad that you're here. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll get there in a minute as some of you are finding a way, your way in and finding a seat. I want to let you know this is important, so hear ye, hear ye. We're so grateful that you're here in the gym. Uh, we're so glad to be able to, to afford you, um, our community, an opportunity for an w- earlier worship hour. And I know a lot of you appreciate that. So while we are excited about 9.30 in the gym, we want to let you know that next Sunday is Labor Day weekend, a holiday weekend. So we're going to have one service. That will be at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary, okay? One service. We know you're allotting room in your heart and schedule for football. We hope you have room for Jesus and church. But next Sunday, don't come here. We want you to come back here the following Sunday. But next Sunday, we'll be 11 o'clock in the sanctuary. You guys have that. We'll remind you of that as well. We'll hit it up on social media. Always some str- somebody that misses that, but we're doing our best to let you know. So next Sunday, not in here, 11 o'clock in the, wor- in the sanctuary, and then we'll be back uh, in the gym. A Harvard sociological study recently revealed the three places, the top three places where humans are prone for uh, hypocrisy, where we... Where people put on the airs, where we pretend, where we fake it. Number one is in the lobby of a fancy hotel. Number two is next to a new car salesman in a showroom. And number three is in church. Our church, we've been saying this whole month of August, started five years ago, and we started across the parking lot in a bar. What does a church have in common with a bar? About a decade and a half ago, the great theologian Toby Keith wrote, I love this bar. And he told us in the song why he, loves this, why he loves the bar. He says, we got winners and we got losers, chain smokers and boozers. We got yuppies, we got bikers, we got thirsty hitchhikers. We got, we got cowboys, we got truckers, heartbroken fools and suckers. We've got hustlers, we've got fighters, early birds, and late-nighters. We've got veterans who tell about their battle scars. Mmm, I love this bar. You don't live too far. Come as you are. I love this bar. Five years ago, we started this church in a bar. What does a church have to do with a bar? Maybe radical acceptance. Maybe being real. Maybe it's one of those places that's not in the top three where we fake it and pretend and live hypocritically. Maybe. I'm just quoting from country music. I don't know. What does the church have to do with the hospital? You know, Jesus came, and when Jesus came, he taught like no other. And one of the revolutionary things Jesus said was to penetrate the hearts of religious people. And he said, I have come not for the righteous... But for the sinners, what do you mean by that? He knew that his message wasn't going to connect with smug, self-righteous people, with people who didn't know they were sick. And in a hospital, who goes to a hospital? The sick. Those who are battered and bruised and beaten up. Those who know they need help. However, at a hospital, have you ever noticed we're worshiping right now around Some major hospitals. But have you noticed that no good, noble hospital will deal with a patient who doesn't want to get well. A doctor is not going to repeatedly deal with a sick person in their room who won't take medicine or accept the needle. Who just wants to occupy space. There's something about that that says I want to get better. And we sort of talked about that last week, didn't we? We've talked about it in these weeks. We are talking about it, the kind of church that we want to be. And while we look back on five years of a church that started in a bar and we say, Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us, we're now asking the question. We have been asking the question, God, what's next? And we're looking at some really important elements that we're praying about. We're, we're hoping that we can be a church where you can say, There's worship that stirs me, there's discipleship that develops me, there's membership that cares for me. Today, leadership that inspires me. And next week, compassion that moves me. We want to be a kind of church where spiritual growth is the rule, not the exception. So this church, this church that Jesus said in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell would not prevail against, this church that began in an upper room in the book of Acts when the first commandment for his people was to what? Not go and be active, not schedule and become activity oriented, but to wait, to wait on God's spirit, to wait on power from on high. In other words, Jesus wanted his followers to know that this is not man-made methodology, that we need the work of the spirit to be a healthy and vibrant church. And they waited and they received power. And he said, when you receive this power, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're here today today because of that Holy Spirit power and that movement. Now, I want to put up some verses before we read 1 Timothy 3 and consider it. I want to put up a few verses really quick from the book of Acts, the early church, because we can talk all day about the church we've been for five years and the church that we hope to be, but this is our North Star. This is what ought to motivate us, but the book of Acts as it unfolded but I want you as we put up these verses real quick like I'm going to read them from the screen and I want you to pay attention you always do that I don't have to say that I want you to pay attention I said it again I want you to pay attention and then notice a pattern of these verses okay here we are Acts 4 4 but many who heard the message believed so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 Acts 5 Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Next. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilea, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. Next. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Acts 17. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Let's stop there. What do you notice? What's a pattern there? Anybody see anything? I'm sorry? Growth. You see growth. There's a pattern of growth. We could put it like this. Exponential growth. Or I'm sorry, let's say explosive growth. But with explosive growth, we learn in Acts that there also becomes, there also grows exponential need, okay? Explosive growth and exponential need. need. If you look at Acts chapter 6, Acts 6 has this uh, story, this account of as the church was growing, like those passages that we see, it was being added to daily. There were hundreds of people and thousands of people. And as it was growing problems arose. How many of you understand that growth results in problems? Has your family expanded? I'm looking at dear friends of mine on the back row with a new baby. Any problems when your family grows? Anybody experienced that in life? Any problems? What about the budget? What about the square footage of your home? What about your sleep? What about meeting needs? Does that ever change? Does, do, do, are new problems created? Yes, and so it is with the church. In Acts 6, we see that. We see Growth, but we see problems. There was a group called the Hellenistic group, and they noticed that their widows were being neglected because of the growth, because of what was happening, because leaders were having to follow that and having to lead, and so people had their needs unmet. And what do people? What do people do? What do we do when our needs go unmet? We say it. We complain, right? Now that's never happened in this church, but it's happened in some other churches I've read about, right? So growth happens. explosive growth can happen in the early church and then there's exponential need and what did they do? They stopped and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and some good people they appointed some people full of faith, scripture says, some people that could be trusted to lead and this group of men said these guys are going to focus on the needs of the widows and serving the daily distribution of the food and the widow's tables while we focus on the word and prayer now there's a cynic in me. Is there a cynic in you? That sounds like some guys at the top were trying to get out of work, right? Sometimes the staff will ask me to do something around here, like behind the scenes, and I say, no, I'm, that's not what I'm looking for. God has called me to high visibility, low responsibility. That rarely works, right? You live that way, you won't be respected by, by anyone. This is not the top guys getting out of work. This, these are the guys saying, Let's really do what we need to do. And their focus would be on the word and would be on prayer. Now, here's what I want to say to you. I'm going to quote a scripture. If you're a note taker, write down Hebrews 13:7. Hebrews 13:7. Today as we talk about leadership that inspires me, I'd like you to make a note of Hebrews 13.7. It says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate. Their faith. Do you think God appoints leaders? Do you think God cares about leadership? Do you think leadership is important? Remember your leaders. Who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Everybody's got a way of life. And every way of life has an outcome. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate their faith. Leaders. Leadership that inspires us. Now, how do we choose leaders? How does the church choose leaders? How do you choose leaders in your organization? How do you choose leaders on the playground or in school or in your friend group? We typically say we choose leaders this this way. I like them. They like me. They're like me. That's, That's how we oftentimes, in human ways, how we choose leadership. But look at Acts 14, 23. A little different here. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now circle the word elders as we consider leadership today. And notice that these elders were not elected. (gasps) Doesn't sound American. They were appointed. Not elected, but appointed. And look bathed in prayer. They denied themselves in order to seek the Lord and they wanted people that could be trusted. The word elder in some ways might spook you. We've got, I think, one or two elders at our church in the room. They serve mostly behind the scenes. I'm an elder. I'm not behind the scenes often but we have guys who do serve here who are behind the scenes. But the word elder Elder is not some weird Jedi council, you know, a group of guys that sit in the back room that pull out the lifesavers life when they meet, right, although that'd be cool. Uh, elders is not a group where Yoda comes out and tells me what to preach, although that'd be way cool. Elders is a group, it's a group who are called out, a group who are appointed, and their task is to set the health and direction of the church through the ministry of the word and prayer. I want to say that again. Elders are a group appointed and set apart to set the health and direction of the church through the ministry of the word and through prayer. As the church grew, they needed elders, they needed deacons. But both bodies are to be be servants. So what I want to talk about in the time that we have left... Is this very idea, Now, most of you, I hope, opened up a Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for us to look at verses 1 through 7. There's no way that we can tackle all of this today, but I just want to hit some of the highlights and maybe unpack a little bit of the meaning in this passage. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to take the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's unpack just a little bit of this. The first thing that it says, the way I've systemized it, we'll kind of look at it in in 12 very quick parts. But it says that, uh, they aspire to the office of overseer. Now, in Scripture, the word pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer is used synonymously and interchangeably, just so you know. But th- the idea here is he aspires to the office of overseer. Let's be clear, this isn't an ambition. Where you hear this summer, we preach through James, and in James chapter 3, it says, uh, be careful that you don't give your lives over to bitter jealousy or what? Selfish ambition. There's a difference between selfish ambition And aspiring to be used by God. You get that? You understand that? So aspiring is not a campaign. We don't want to see a group of guys walking around here, you know, vote for me, elder at FC. We don't want a guy sitting in the sanctuary later today with a hat on that says, make Fondren great again. Okay? That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for campaigners, right? In fact, the current group of elders who serve here, uh, to a man... Uh, felt in many ways unworthy. They didn't come looking for it, but once we tapped them on the shoulder to serve in this role, once we appointed them, they have served willingly and humbly and eagerly, I believe, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. By the way, if you're studying pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter 5, Titus 1 are all those stretches of Scripture which talk specifically about this role, God gives us a blueprint on how to lead the church, but doesn't tell us everything. He leaves some things to our imagination. He wants us to seek wisdom. Get this—figure. He wants us to figure it out. He wants us to learn in many ways as we go. But they aspire to the office of overseer. It's a call to be an elder. Is a call to come and to die. To be a leader is a call to serve. To follow Jesus in any leadership capacity is to take up your cross and lay down your life. Number one, an elder is to aspire to the office of overseer. The second thing it says here is this person needs to be above reproach. Doesn't mean that his past is pristine. It doesn't mean that he's living his life presently in sinless perfection, for none of us would be tapped on the shoulder. None of us, including the guy speaking now, would be worthy to serve in this role. But it does mean... That if a charge is brought, that charge is either not true or we can look, we can peek under that rock and see that this person is learning God's grace. He's growing in God's grace in his life and he's learning the the value of confession and repentance. A third characteristic, it says, is that he is the husband of one wife. The literal Greek translation there is he's a one-woman man. Now, I want you to realize... How startling that was, though, in its culture. A lot of times we think, well, that culture was so good. It was family-oriented, right? And they were tight-knit. And it was an Ossie and Herod type, you know, father-knows-best, Warden-June-Cleaver existence. And then things have just slowly deteriorated to where we are as a society today. That's not it. In fact, sexual sin was running rampant. Polygamy was a common practice. One writer and one very popular writer at the, about the time this was written, a famous Greek Roman writer, he says that we have mistresses uh, for the sake of our pleasure. We have concubines for the daily chores and we have wives to bear our children. Women were put down in that society. I've said it many times over that Jesus is a feminist. Not a radical, militant feminist, but if a feminist is, is defined by someone who advances the rights of women, then Jesus and the church are, are feminist. To be a one husband man is to be faithful to that woman and to be sexually pure. To have one's life accountable in that regard. You'll see in this passage and the others in the New Testament that this role is spoken in the masculine. Now here's where I, wanna, I want you to hear my pastoral heart. I really want to strive for truth and want to overcome as much division as we can. But in the scripture, uh, I want you to know that God, when he creates men and women, it says in the Bible that he created male and female. And that he created them in his image and in his likeness. In other words, they're equal. N- neither one is better than the other. Now, I write left-handed, and I do pretty much everything else right-handed. There's a name for that. What do you call that? Gifted. That's right, gifted. (laughs) Um, But look, even though I have a dominant hand with one thing, I have a dominant hand with other things, and these two hands of mine are not in competition. They are what? They are in complement to each other. Now, for many, 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 many years as a student of the Bible and as a pastor, I've studied this. I don't know if you have. And so what I want you to do is hear my pastoral heart and I want you to hear me that I'm still learning and I'm still growing. And so in this area, I believe clearly that God has created man and woman equal. Paul would reiterate that, even though there's some things that were said in the New Testament, maybe that we want to run from or recoil at, Paul said that whether we're Jew or Greek, male or bond or free, whether we're male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. I tell that to young couples when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling. Sometimes I quote it at the wedding and I tell that guy, hey, the scripture says that she's to be subject to, to you as unto the Lord, but it also says that you're to be subject to one another. And there's that beautiful scripture, listen men, in Genesis 21, 12. It's there if you want to look at it later. When God looks at his boy Abraham and says, you go to Sarah, your wife, and listen to her. And the implication is, you listen to her and get this, you do what she says. So let me just crush the notion that men are in any way better than women. And that the scripture in any way teaches that. But I have currently and for many years... I have believed and am leading our church in the complementarian position of Scripture. There's two, there's two views of this in the Bible, the role of man and woman. One is um, egal, if we can put that up. One is egalitarian, and the other is complementarian. Now, egalitarian, just to state it simply, it's, when, uh, it's for churches and leaders who believe that men and women are equal, that's it. We're, we're, they're equal in value and they're also same in role and responsibility. But the complementarian position, the one that I believe humbly that scripture teaches, is that men and women are equal but distinct in role and responsibility. You hear that? Equal in worth, merit, and value, and skill, but distinct in their role and their responsibility. There are a couple of books that I would encourage you to to read Equal But Different by Alexander Starch and Freedom and Boundaries by Kevin DeYoung. Now, I know you. I, there's a lot of thick books out there that you wouldn't read, but you could read each of these books in a couple of days. And it lays out this, this idea of what I believe the Scripture teaches. But years ago, I learned something. I, a, a, a man that mentored me, he wrote, he drew some concentric circles on a chalkboard. He put NFL. In the center of that circle, he put in, and he called it the non-negotiables, the things that we, we need to agree on. If we're going to be a team, if we're going to move forward, these are things that, that we can't budge on. They're non-negotiables. But the F is flexible. Uh, you could, you, you're in process, and I'm in process. I'm learning, and you're learning. So we've got to learn to work it out, and we need to do that in a good way, in a unifying way. And that the outer edge of the circle is love. And that's where you, you, you believe this and I believe this and they're not the same but we're still called to love each other. So I've given you a couple of different views. I've given you a couple of different books that you could read to dive into this. I've stated to you a couple of different views on this. But I believe that men and women are created equal, but we're distinct in role and responsibility. At Fondra Church, here's what I believe, and we can have some disagreement. I believe that women can lead in every position. I believe women can lead and ought to lead. I believe they can teach and they can counsel and they can minister. They can have staff positions. They can have a very vital, important seat at the table. But we reserve the role of elder for a man. And that is not chauvinistic. It, and, and it's a position that I, that I take humbly and that I pray that's not terribly divisive. I pray that we can have a dialogue about this as we learn and grow into our future. We have had a woman speak at Fondren Church. Some, if you've been here these years, you know that we've been blessed by her. And almost every time she's spoken, someone's gotten up and walked out. Or I've gotten an email, not necessarily an angry email. Or I've learned that they left our church because of that fact. So do you see why I'm saying that it's important for us to pursue love, to find out what's non-negotiable, to find out where we're flexible? And then the biggest circle is the love circle to find out, hey, even if we disagree, even if you believe this way and I believe this way, can we still, can we love each other? And so we're learning and I'm learning. So it's theological for me why our elders are men. But more than that, it's, it's really practical. There's a brotherhood of guys that I've come over these years to know and to love. And they've built into my life. And not um, every single one of them have, in some respects, loved me and supported me. They've rebuked me and admonished me and called me out and kept me on task. And I love them for that. And I love their wives who they have given to our church to make great sacrifices for our church. So we see that this leader, this one called the elder, it's not a mystical Jedi council sort of thing. It's a man who's called out by God, who aspires to the office of overseer, who's above reproach, who's the husband of one wife. And it goes on to say this it talks about being sober minded and self controlled. You and I are a bundle and collection of appetites, we have desires. In the Greek and Roman world at the time that this was written, Cicero was a famous philosopher. And he said that reason should direct, appetite should obey. And life gets very dangerous for us. In fact, modern psychologists and counselors and child development experts tell us that the biggest concern they have for children in the modern world is impulse control. This, you know, having freedom and getting what you want all the time, never hearing no, not learning boundaries, having such a feeling of entitlement. You're so special that we're not learning impulse control. Solomon, who lived one heck of a life, said this toward the end in Proverbs 25. Like a city, it's broken down, its walls are broken down, is a man without self-control. One of the best-selling books of the past several years, Jim Collins, How the Mighty Fall. And in many ways, this is how the mighty fall, not having self-control. Beyond being sober-minded and self-controlled, it says to be respectable and hospitable. The word respectable there has a, a... a Greek word that indicates orderly, that we live in a lot of craziness and randomness, but this, this person has a sense of values. They've oriented their lives around something bigger than themselves. They're respectable, if we could put that up, and they're hospitable. We quoted last week from Romans 12, the kind of church that we want to be when it comes to membership, that we would... Our love would be without hypocrisy, that we would abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, that we would be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And it goes on to say that we would contribute to the needs of the saints and that we would be hospitable. And that word, hospitable, there, I don't know if we can put that up, but that word is, it has two, it's a compound word. One is phileo love, and the other is, it means stranger, to love the stranger. So last week, if there was any baggage with this idea of membership, if it sounds like an American Express commercial where membership has its privileges and we care about ourselves, this idea over and over again in New Testament about being hospitable should just simply shatter that. The idea there is that the church would be made up of members who are led by leaders and those leaders would be hospitable. They would love the strangers. They would care about those who are in exile. We exist. The church, I think, is the only place whose membership exists for the sake of its non-members. How are our doors open as a pastor and if I'm your pastor I want to I want to admonish you I want to challenge you to be careful what you post and be careful who you align yourself with and think about think about your savior and what he had to say about those in exile about those who were homeless and those who were down and out a leader is a humble servant and that that person who leads in the church ought to be hospitable next up it says that He ought to be able to teach. That doesn't mean that he should preach from the platform or that he has to be able to do that. I don't think it means that he uh, should be able to hold the attention of an audience. I do think, according to Titus 1.9, in fact, let's put that up. I think we're frozen back there. Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's really important for a church to be oriented in the truth of Scripture. In order for that to happen, the church, the bride of Christ, needs a team. And those leaders need to be able to know the word in order to encourage and in order to refute. And we need both. We need both. So he's sober-minded and self-controlled, respectable and hospitable. He's able to teach and he's not a drunkard. Look at this passage and no, no one ever says amen on that part. Look at this passage in Isaiah. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. My wife is from the West Coast, as a lot of you know, but she, she was born in New Jersey. Her parents are originally from New Jersey. And she has an uncle, get this, his name, is, his name was Jack Daniels. And he's an old Irish Catholic New Jersey Shore firefighter. So when we would visit Uncle Jack on the front porch, there was the Notre Dame, Irish Catholic flag and the American flag. And he would always say to Susan's dad when they both were alive, it's five o'clock somewhere. Uh And man, Jack Daniels, let me tell you, he lived out his name. Joker lived out his name. And what happened to him, his life was cut short, just like his baseball hero Mickey Mantle's life was, with liver problems in large part, due to drinking alcohol can be so destructive and it can be so addictive but for a second forget uncle jack daniels there's a man named perry noble And I'll probably in the 11 o'clock see a lot of head shake on this one because college kids have loved Perry Noble. He's a real famous pastor in South Carolina. It's a mega church. It's multi-site. They've had 17 campuses. And in the early part of the summer, the elders at their church, New Spring Church, asked Perry to step away from the pastorate because of alcoholism, because of his, quote, posture toward his wife, not being gentle and not leading her and loving her well, and alcoholism. And though it was painful, this pastor stepped away. He submitted himself to the leadership of those elders who loved him. And just today, after several uh, several months in St. Louis, he's coming back home just to sit at his church today. To sit in the congregation to say, I'm on a long road of healing. You know, at Fondren Church, we preach freedom in this area. We preach it and we exercise it. I know our leadership does. I know I do but I have an increasing concern for the church can I just say this is my pastor's heart speaking we need to be real careful how we handle this and I'm not fit and these Navy SEAL guys are not fit to lead in our church if this is a problem in their life and this week in the wee hours of the night I got a phone call domestic violence ugly scene One of our own. And this was at the heart of it. I didn't know. Now I do. I'm asking us to be careful in this area. We need to be very, very careful here. Let's roll through the end. Not a drunkard. Then it says several things here. Not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Remember, I say this often. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. He didn't say, hey, don't serve them both. He said, you cannot serve God and money. And lastly, if, three things real quick. He must manage his own household well. Mm. None on this list humbles me more than that one. It doesn't mean you don't have problems at home. It doesn't mean you don't get into it with your wife at times. It does not mean that your kids are going to be perfect. It means that you manage your home well. And no one agree disagree with verse 5. If it doesn't work at home, don't export it. And everybody that leads in the church needs to lead well at home. A couple more before we close. He must not be a recent convert. When I was in college at Mississippi State, we started a new major called Turf Grass Management. Old Miss fans, you can laugh. And there was a new rugby team starting at the time. There were bumper stickers that some of my friends were on the rugby team that said, Give Blood, Play Rugby. And I noticed friends of mine were working hard to level a field, to, to put down sod, and to get, the, to get the field ready for rugby. But they had a rugby tournament before the grass was really growing. It destroyed that field. It wasn't ready yet. So it is in the heart of a man who's called to lead to be an elder. If you throw him in too early, it could do damage. It must not be a recent convert. After having said that, let me say this. I know men that have been in the church for four or five decades that are still spiritual infants. And I know some that have been in the church for a year that are towering spiritual giants and they're growing. I'm going to call out Nick Crawford. I don't know that I've ever seen a young man... Uh, He's only been a believer for about, what, seven years, and he's just grown so fast. He's so gifted and so godly. Lastly, this person must be well thought of. You have a reputation, right? Character is more important. Jesus said in Matthew 23, woe are you if everyone speaks well of you. You know what I've learned after those years of being a pastor? Not everybody likes me, and not everybody speaks well of me. You guys, I want you to look surprised when I say that. Like, what, what, huh, huh? But it's true. Now, I didn't sign up for that, but that's true. But anybody in leadership, anybody in leadership is going to face this. But here's what I'm learning, that I have a reputation, and you have a reputation. And when people say your name, what do people think of? Character is more important than reputation, but reputation matters. Now, I've systemized these in, in 12 There's really about 15 character traits for an elder in the church. And one, hear me, one has to do with the skill, able to teach. And all the others have to do with character. Just let that sit over you for a second. It really, really matters, doesn't it? And I think what God is saying to our church and the church in the future is, get good people to lead. At Fondren, in this season for us, we believe that those People are men. And these are the traits. We want to follow what the New Testament says. And we want these traits to be a part of how we lead. And as we move into the next season, we are taking, we're taking nominations for elder. If you know someone, you know a man that's a good man and a godly man, and you think he fits these characteristics, we would love for you as you leave today or in the weeks to come, we would love for you to nominate that man, to be an elder at our church. There'll be a process, but we want to add to our team so that we can lead this church into the future. Jesus has dreams for his church, and I believe he has dreams for this church. And I believe that worship that stirs you and discipleship that develops you and membership that cares for you and leadership that inspires you and compassion that moves you, all those things are only going to happen to the extent that we're led well. And being led well is not a one-man job by any stretch. Over and over again, in fact, every time this is mentioned, you see a plurality of leaders, several leading out.